We're going to look at Haggai today. Uh, We are rapidly coming to an end of the study that we've been doing in the Minor Prophets. Haggai is actually the the first of the last three, which are post-exilic prophets. They were the ones that prophesied after the people returned to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. And one interesting thing about Haggai is we know the exact dates of his oracles. Haggai prophesied in the year 520, uh, the latter part of that year. And uh, there are five actual prophecies or oracles in his book. And uh, the first one is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. That was on August 29th. The second one was in uh, verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1. That's September 21. The one we're going to look at today, uh, which is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, was October 17th. And then the final two, which were in chapter 2, 10 through 23, were on December 18th. Something very interesting and different from the other prophets that we've looked at. So if you will stand, please, as we read this, the word of the Lord from Haggai, or Haggai, as some people say, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The Word of God. When I first began to read uh, the text for this morning, a story came to mind that uh, Bob White, uh, Robert Ed, shared with me several years ago. He was talking, telling me about how when the folks at Harrison Irving first started uh, planning and working toward building this building that we now worship in, said there was a lot of discussion as to whether or not they ought to put a steeple on top of the building because it was going to cost $30,000, which in today's economy is roughly $230,000. And some folks didn't think that that was a very good idea to spend that much money on a uh, seemingly useless aesthetic. I guess I'll say it that way. And I I tell you, having paid almost $60,000 to have it refurbished about three or four years ago, uh, sometimes I wonder if maybe if they would have reconsidered. Nonetheless... It is a very beautiful steeple, and it is a a very beautiful piece of uh, architecture that sits on top of our building. 
But anyway, remembering that story kind of aroused my curiosity. I thought, I'm going to go back and look at some old bulletins and see uh, what I can find, see if I can find anything about uh, when they were working on this, when they were planning to move out here to Johnson Street from downtown. And uh, to my disappointment, I only found about five articles uh, over roughly a three-year period that had to do with moving out here. But one of the things that really jumped out at me, and I remember Kevin, uh, I was in the conference room, Kevin walked in, he said, what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing, I said, you know, something that really, I, I keep noticing, I've, I've been going through all these bulletins, it's like nearly every week there's something to do with Bible class attendance. There were, hear and discuss God's teaching, attend Sunday school, let's go and grow in April, 677 in Bible class. Average thus far in 1964, 667. Our goal to average for 1964, 664. Let's have 700 this Sunday. For several weeks in a row, I noticed there was a kind of a clip art. There was this uh, gentleman with a uh, ruler above his head, and he had a smile on his face, and there was a graph out to the side, and a number up at the top, and of course it had the line going up, and, and the number was started out like, uh, well, the, the caption was Operation Onward, and, uh, and he was standing there, and the number was like 583 one week, and the next week it was 601, and next week it was 634, and then the following week he had kind of a, a sadness on his face. And the, number, and the ruler was down by his feet, and the number said 534. And the caption said, Operation Onward went downward. And so, you know, um, another one, September 23rd, 1962, was an historical day at Harrison Irving. 1,081 in Bible class and 1,318 present for morning worship. And then the very first Sunday in this building... Stanley, one of Stanley Lockhart's articles said, What a thrill it was to see nearly 800 in Bible school and 1,116 present for morning worship. And you know, and, and I, I have to confess that I thought to myself, you know, is that all that mattered back then was attendance? It's all they talked about was attendance. And I was kind of like, you know, this is just a little bit too much. But now before you start judging me, let me finish my story. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was a thank you note that appeared in uh, one of the bulletins a couple of day, a couple of weeks, I guess, after they had uh, made the move out here. And it was a little, it was a thank you note from the elders. It was written by Ed White, who was the father of Bob White that I was talking about. And expressing their gratitude to the congregation for all the hard work and effort to build and move to this facility. And the closing words of that article read this. The goal now is to fill the building to its seating capacity of 1,500. And that's when I looked at uh, Haggai again, and it just kind of hit me. This building was simply a tool. It wasn't a, a new place to come and, and to worship. It wasn't a new place that was about themselves. It wasn't a beautiful piece of architecture with an enormous steeple so that people would drive by and say, what a beautiful church. These folks were growing. They were running out of rooms. So we need a bigger place so we can reach out to more people. This way we can invite more friends, have larger meetings, and canvas new neighborhoods. We're going to keep sharing the good news and grow the kingdom. 
They were working on a plan, and the Lord blessed it. We find Haggai kind of in a similar situation. He's in Jerusalem. He's at the side of the temple. Judah was a tiny sub-province of the Persian Empire. Uh, Cyrus, uh, who had come to power with the Persian Empire back in uh, the early, well, I guess, well, 538 to be exact, of, um, and, and the Persians were kind of different, especially the, the kings. They wanted to know more about the religions of other people, and they wanted to allow other people to go ahead and practice their religions. And so Cyrus had allowed the Jews who had been in Babylonian exile to return to the land of Palestine and to rebuild the temple. And you can uh, look at Ezra, look at the first four chapters of Ezra, and it tells all of this story. The initial remnant that led the first group, uh, or, or the folks that led the first group, were Shesh Bazar, who was a prince of Judah at the time, Zerubbabel, which in our story appears as the governor, and Zerubbabel, by the way, was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, who was on the throne when the Israelites were actually taken into captivity. And then also Joshua, or Jeshua, as some translations have it, who was the high priest. These three led the initial attempt to rebuild the temple. But the people only managed to lay the foundation before everyday life kind of got in the way and took over. And, of course, opposition from the neighboring countries uh, that didn't want the temple to be rebuilt sidetracked them. So we look at the first oracle just to set the stage. It's a word from the Lord letting them know that their priorities were out of whack and that he really wasn't the God, really wasn't occupying the place he wanted in their lives. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 1 said, it is, a t- it is a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled, I'm sorry, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. He says, you people are busy, but you're busy with your own business. You built houses, you planted crops, and you've established an economy. You're doing well in life, but you're not getting the most out of it because I'm not in the front leading the way, I I being God. You've planted a lot, but you've harvested a little. You eat, but you don't get full. You drink, but you're not satisfied. You've got plenty of clothes, but you're still cold. You make plenty of money, but you have nothing to show for. Have you forgotten who you are? You've forgotten what you're about? Who are you? I'd imagine the people would answer, well, we're the people of God. Well, what are you about? Glorifying God. Well, then where and how are you to do that? In the temple. Well, where's the temple? Um, There's not one. Then let's build it. And how are we going to do that? Look at what we have to work with. Remember, one of the complaints was is that the foundation that had been laid 20 20 years earlier, roughly, uh, was nowhere near what uh, Solomon's original temple looked like. And so they were were, kind of taken aback, and it's like, it's got to be better than this. But Haggai says... And you go to chapter 2, verse 4, part of the text that we read. He says, Take courage, be strong, O Zerubbabel. Take courage, O Joshua. Take courage, all you people. Work. 
For I am with you, and I am in the Hebrew, they would know exactly who, they, who uh, that was being referred to. That was obviously God. According to the promise I made to you when, we came out, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. So three times he tells them to take courage. And then there's one little bitty word, and I just skipped right over it. And I wonder how many other people have skipped right over it. And I didn't notice it until I was reading in a commentary. But that little bitty word is work. He said, take courage and start acting. Haggai says, don't worry about the size or the looks. You just go cut down the trees and start erecting the walls and God will take care of the rest. You just get to work and the Lord will worry about everything else. Something that someone shared to me a long time ago, and I still use, use it today and to give you an example, it's much easier to, to steer a moving vehicle than it is one that is stopped. Bob Bruni came up to me after service and said, yeah, the same thing with the boat. You can't move a boat unless you've got the propeller running and, and, and then you know, the rudder will take it any which way you want. But I use that in kind of making an analogy to our spiritual life, and that is that God... It can much easier steer us and move us if we're walking as opposed if we're just standing and not doing anything. It's difficult for him to do anything with us. God has always done what he said he would do, and even in this situation, he will be with you. Faithful people are constantly challenged to decide what is at the heart of their faith and what is peripheral, what is lasting and what is passing. And this is even more difficult when the latter is closely associated with matters of substance. You know, we may fancy the idea of a purely abstract faith that needs no external trappings beyond the loyalty of the worshiper. But that has never been a reality for people of faith. People have always needed symbols for that faith. An interesting fact, Haggai's name means feast. And the time that he was actually prophesying, the time of year, was during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was the last major feast of the Jewish calendar year and occurred, occurred during the harvest time, the harvest season. And it was celebrated to remind Israel of their dependence on God and that also one day as they gathered in their crops that God would also gather them. But how are you to keep God in the forefront of your lives and daily activities if you don't have a place that brings you together to do that? The temple was not merely a building that represented the presence of God. It was a community of faith in response to God. It wasn't so much the temple itself that created their relationship with God as it was what went on inside the temple and how they expressed it in their lives outside of the temple. It is sometimes easy to make the actual building the focus of a congregation's expectation rather than to hear the call of God to be the church, the kingdom of God here and now in this place. I remember many conversations when we were uh, getting ready to build the family center that's behind us. And most, if not all, of our discussions centered around how we could use that facility to bless this community and not really anything is how it could bless us. Another thing that I went looking for and I couldn't find 
the binder of the bulletins from 1989. If any of you know where that binder is, we'd like to have it back in the office. We can't find it. But 1989 was the very first year for Blessed to Be a Blessing. And um, I'm pretty sure, and Harold, you'll correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, but I think that was actually Harold's idea. There have been a few others that were involved in it, but if memory serves me correctly, we had entered kind of a, an economic downturn, and we had to do some major cuts to, to the budget. And one of the uh, budgets that got cut significantly was the uh, benevolence budget. We'd been sending a lot of money to different uh, children's home and orphans' home, and there wasn't the money to do that anymore. So Harold came up with this idea that we may not be able to reach out that far, but we can certainly continue to reach out beyond the boundaries of these uh, four walls. And so he had this idea to give, he wanted to give food to a hundred of the less fortunate families of our community for Christmas. Back in its beginning, Blessed to be a Blessing actually took place the second, uh, sometimes even the third Sunday of December, depending on how it it fell. But we handed out sacks and lists, and we told people just to go buy groceries. And Harold seemed to recall that we collected somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 pounds that very first year, or roughly probably four to 500 sacks of groceries. And we delivered those to 100 families. We met our goal, uh, and there was some left over that went into the pantry. Now, this was way before Rush Street. This building was kind of utter chaos. We had tables spread along the front here. We had people unloading sacks and stacking food according to uh, groupings. Uh, we had other folks that were coming down another side, and they were putting, uh, making sure that there was one can or one bag or, what, or one sack or whatever of, of everything in the sacks. Uh, the fellowship hall was actually blessed to be a blessing central. Uh, we had a few uh, shopping carts, and we had some underage drivers that were driving those around and uh, kind of, you know, running into walls, but they were taking stuff down to the fellowship hall. And that, 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 that very first year, we gave out uh, the sacks of groceries, we gave out fruits and vegetables, and we gave a gallon of milk. And for the last... I didn't do the additions, but since 1989, every year, we've been doing Blessed to be a Blessing, and that's grown from 100 to almost 400 uh, is what we did actually a couple of years ago. We kind of backed that back off because that was a little bit too big to, uh, big a uh, chunk for us to chew. But what we did is we made a decision to put something into motion, and God blessed it. And blessed to be a blessing is now a part of who we are. That's what we do. That's how we step outside of these four walls and reach into our community. There's one family that now attends church here that uh, attends church here because of blessed to be a blessing. And not because they were recipients of what we gave out, but because they were looking for a church at the time and they knew or they... uh, got to know, I guess, through some of our members, that that's what we did. And they said, this is a place that we want to be a part of. We want to be a part of a place that is about getting outside the walls, reaching out, and practicing God in real life. We want to be a, they wanted to be a part of a church that was active in touching lives of the community. Now, 50 years ago, attendance drives worked, and they fill this building to its gills, but that's not what resonates in 2013. So we take food to needy families. We have block parties over at Rush Street. We have ice cream suppers during VBS, and we have Bible studies in the jail, and we have 12-step programs. 
uh, or groups for folks that are struggling with different addictions. We can't always make things happen immediately, but if we don't do anything, nothing will ever take place. Bob Knox has an expression, and I called him up to see if he'd give me the exact words, and he couldn't remember them because he said every time I say it, I say it differently. But it's something like this. He said, Jesus has the ball rolling, and I'm just trying to keep up. You know, in the final three verses of the text that we read, the Lord says, I will shake all the nations, and I will fill this house with splendor, and in its place I will give peace and prosperity. Another interesting fact, and we know from history and also from the book of Ezra, that when King Darius came to the throne, which was in 521, uh, in about 519, so shortly after Haggai made all these prophecies, that he issued a decree that not only ordered the rebuilding of the temple, but ordered for it to be paid from the national treasury. And so it was the same people that opposed the building of the temple before were the ones that were actually funding the building to be built. Blessed to be a blessing kind of started out as our own little thing. It's really grown. We've got Central High School and Lakeview High School that participate in that. Rush Street kind of started out to be our own little thing, and it's grown, and it's uh, mushroomed, and now we've got other churches in town that are involved in that. God will always bless the things that we do in his name. Habitat for Humanity founder Millard Fuller, in his book, The Theology of the Hammer, stated, Our Christian faith mandates that we do more than just talk about faith and sing about love. We must put faith and love into action to make them real, to make them come alive for people. Faith must be incarnated. It must become more than a verbal proclamation for an intellectual assent. In Haggai's time, the rebuilding of the temple was a visible sign of the Israelites' determination to put God first in their lives. A scripture that Larissa pointed out to me uh, from the Gospel of Mark, the very last verse of chapter 16, Mark says, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. God is still here. He's still blessing the work of his people, and I hope that we never lose sight of our primary mission, which is to glorify God in our lives and in our efforts. Let us stand and sing.